right, so we're going to start like kind of the what I'm titling this is when Jesus, where, where we left off, we left off with the statement that Jesus said, you know, it's finished. So the question is, it is finished. What is it? Maybe. But what is it? You know, I, I, it, yeah, his earthly ministry didn't really finish. It just changed. So I started pondering this whole thing of it. What is it? So we're going to talk about it today. If I'm going to think about it, you're going to think about it. So if I just titled this, what is, what is, it is finished, and really Easter and beyond. Um, I'm trying to get us caught up, so at Pentecost Sunday, I'll be done, so when Doug comes in, we'll actually be there, but I don't know. I don't know. I'm not promising that. I'm just telling you it's my intention. I want to go back before we start into into what we're going to look at today. And there's a scripture that gets used all the time. It's a scripture that ties into a lot of, of theological uh, perspectives. And it gets used to justify some, lang- some uh, ways of thinking. And that is Psalm 22, verse 1. So what I'm going to do, though, I'm going to read... All of Psalms 22, because verse 1 is the first verse. And verse 1 doesn't state what Psalms 22 is about. It's an opening statement about where our heart is, and then it moves forward. So Psalms 22, starting with verse 1. And this is this, this verse that we're all familiar with. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groanings? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you, they cried, and were rescued. In you, they trusted, and were not put to shame. But I am a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me, like a raving, roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaw. You lay me in the dust of death. For the dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. 
I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. For you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. For he, is, he was... Yeah, for he has not despised nor abhorred the afflicted, the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried him, when he cried to him. For you come, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who cannot keep his life alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generations. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to the people yet unborn, that he has done it. That Psalms 22.1 gets used over and over again to prove that somehow a, um, a polytheistic God either these many gods and we have this one God that's a war God that's after the God that's the suffering God and so it all gets culminates on the cross but in fact we had one God we have one God we're not a polytheistic faith we're a monotheistic faith God himself was redeeming his creation humanity the affliction that Jesus the man was taking did not separate him from God and I contend nor was it being directly put on him by God. He was being murdered and tortured by humans who saw him and the powers behind them saw him as the threat to a system that had been in place for the millennia and was about to come to an end. In Psalms 22, we look further, you know, we start with verse 1, and we want to all say, well, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I grew up in thinking that at that point, because Jesus was in the midst of dealing with sin, that somehow God turned away from him, because when God looked at him, what he saw was Robert Muncie and everything Robert Muncie had done wrong, said wrong, thought wrong. All he could do is see this Robert Muncie that he really wants to kill. But instead, I'll just kill Jesus instead. So I'll turn my back and I can't look at him because all I see is vile humanity. When in fact, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes shall be saved. God's intention from the beginning was redemption and reconciliation, not wrath and destruction. It wasn't a divided God that somehow needed to appease himself 
in order to look again at humanity. It was a God that said humanity is trapped by death and sin. And there is no human that can undo this trap. And what man can't do, God can do. And what man wouldn't do, God decided to do. And what God or what man was against being done, God himself said, I trump you. You'll come to me in violence. I'll come to you in love. I'll beat you on the field of love, not on the field of violence. It'll not be a struggle of armies. It'll not be the struggle of a keen leader on a sharp horse that can command the armies where they should go and what they should do. It'll be one man suffering and being crucified and being viewed by those around him as just a rebel criminal like all the other rebel criminals. And it was a good day at the end of the day because we got rid of him. But Psalms 22, as it goes on, you know, it says, uh, you know, verse 26, for example, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live with forever. Jesus was not disconnected from the Father. He's in agony, yes. He's in pain, yes. He's, 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 been, he's hanging between heaven and earth. But he's not abandoned. And, he's, and God has not turned his back on him. And he doesn't turn his back on us. No matter where we find ourselves, we sang about that today. No matter where we find ourselves, we are with him. He is with us. We are not far from him, but near. Luke 24, starting with verse 1. So anyway, stop using Psalms 22 as trying to prove that God the Father turned his back on Jesus the Son and didn't like him or couldn't look at him and, and abandoned him. He was not abandoned. Selah. Luke 24, starting with verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they, per while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their feet to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. Just a short moment. All the women were the first ones in on the good news. 
Where were the men? They were hiding their butts in the inner of inner for fear somebody was going to come and chop their head off. And it's the women that went to the tomb. It was the women that were the first to peer in. It was the women that were first to speak to the angels. And ladies, you can probably relate to this. They came back and told the guys, and the guys went, no way. No way. Just a little aside. So the women, they came back and told him and told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. They did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping, looking in. He saw the linen cloth by or linen cloths by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened. So this idea, what what actually happened on Easter, what does this thing, it is finished, what, what is taking place? You know, when Jesus rose from the dead on Easter morning, it was the beginning of a new world. The new creation had happened. It was in, it was in its very infancy, but it had happened. The new world is what the Israel's God had always intended to make, and it wasn't a when, um, or it is a when, not a if, that he rose. When he rose. When he rose. The only possible explanation for the quick rise of Christianity is that after being brutally tortured and executed by the Roman soldiers, who were experts in the art of killing, after three days, Jesus, being fully dead, rose from the grave. I did, we cannot, we just can't minimize what that is. If, and, and, you know, as I've, I've tried to do, and maybe a little bit we can get there, but to, to have been that group of people who had watched Jesus be murdered, they had watched him be tortured, they had watched him carry the cross, some of them were actually bold enough to go with him, as he was put on the cross, most didn't and hightailed it to get to a safer location. But they had seen that. They had taken the body down. They had prepared the body for burial. They had laid it in the tomb. They had watched the stone be rolled in front of it. They, they knew the guards had been placed in front of the tomb. They had seen that. I mean, they had literally seen that. It's as if, you know, I don't even know how to quite put that in in words necessarily, but most of us that have gone through the death of a loved one know what it's like. We, we stood in front of them. They are dead. They are not breathing. They have left this life. And anything we do to the body, we have to do it because the body is dead and incapable of doing anything in itself. And those of us that have been through those, those times with someone that we've lost, you, we feel the helplessness. We feel the, the, the pain of that moment. We feel the emotions that go with all that. How much more for these people who had all their hope had been pinned on this man? And part of that hope was that what the things that he said, but more of that hope was based on who he was, 
I mean, they had come to believe, Jesus, you are the Christ. That's no, no easy transition for a Jew to make, to come to the place and go, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the one. All the Passovers that we have celebrated in expectation of the Exodus story finally being completed. All those times that we've sat at the Passover table. How many years at the end have we raised the cup and said, next year in Jerusalem, next year the Redeemer will come, next year. And we've, we've walked through our history and men have risen up over the years from the Maccabees on and have said, you know, I'm the deliverer. And we thought our hope had been would rise and then it would be crushed when whoever was the power it be, the Babylonians or the Syrians or the Romans, whatever, we watched our leaders and the people we rallied behind be crushed and be killed. And now we've just witnessed it again. This time it seemed different. This time my hope was higher. This time this man seemed to have something about him that nobody else had. This time I, there was something inside of me that woke up and said, there's something new. There's a new kingdom that's about to arise. And this man is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And I have been brought into this. I'm now part of what is about to happen. And then to watch him be brutally murdered, executed as a rebel. All my hopes not only would crash, but I think they would crash deeper. Because if this man wasn't able to do it, what man is there that can do it? But even in coming to that point, it, it, I, I'm sure they were also dealing with, Jesus, you didn't do it right. You didn't build the army. We, we, you came into town in your triumphal entry. That was the point. That was the moment when you should have stood and said, everybody that, that is coming and ready to join this army. We are ready to drive out the Romans. We are ready to cleanse the temple. We are ready to liberate Israel and have her come back to her, to the glory that she's been promised. And you come into town, you had the perfect opportunity. We lined the streets for you. We waved our palm branches for you. We, we cried out, Hosanna, to God in the highest. We were ready. We would have given our lives in that moment. And instead of doing that, instead of giving us the invitation to finally start this thing, you go to the temple and get in an argument with the people at the temple. That's not the way you should have done it. You put yourself in a vulnerable position. You allowed yourself to be arrested. Jesus, what in the world? No, no political leader, no military leader would have ever allowed himself to be trapped in a garden at night by the soldiers. That was the worst place to be, Jesus. All the caves we got around here, all the valleys, all the places we could have hit, you go to the same place you go often and everybody knew you were there. You made it so easy that all Judas had to say was, just go over the garden, you'll find him. Because that's where we always go after Passover. He'll be right there. And he was right there. So they had just gone through all that. But now, you come to the place where, for the women, you walk in the tomb, and it's empty. Resurrection, the power of resurrection, 
is huge. It's huge. So the only, you know, the only possible explanation is that after seeing all this happen to Jesus and then going to the tomb, it's empty. Not only is it empty, but the, the grave clothes are folded up and placed in, in place. It's like, if you're going to steal the body, at least take the clothes with you. You know, I mean, what, what, what is that? What was the point of that? You know, at the time, one of the strong stories that circulated was that when they took Jesus off the cross, he was not dead. They laid him in the tomb. And then later, some people came, got him out of the tomb, and took him away so he could recuperate. Which I'm sure in the day, everybody would have went, did you see him? What do you mean he wasn't dead? And the Romans don't make those kind of mistakes. They're experts in killing. They know exactly how to kill. Actually, one of the, one of the uh, uh, like physical accounts that I, I read concerning um, the crucifixion, normally when crucified, <clears throat> like when the Romans would just, if they're using nails, because crucifixion wasn't always the way Jesus was crucified. But crucifixion typically would, have, would be, they don't put the nails through the palm of your hands because there's no strength in your hand to hold the weight of your body. The, palm, the nails go between the two bones of the forearms because then they can hook on the wrists. And they don't overlap the two feet and drive one spike through the two. They put them on either side of whatever post they're using and they nail a spike through just above the ankle that holds you there. So no matter where the weight no matter how you try to reposition, you're just tra trading agony for agony, right? Jesus, though, his hands were pierced. And in the, in the couple of the articles that I read, most people speculate with that, and, and I, it makes sense to me, that having gone through what he had already gone through, it was amazing that he was still alive just from the events that led to the cross. Right. And the fact that he had the strength to carry the cross from where he had been tortured to where he was going to be ultimately executed, that in itself was miraculous. Actually, the whole deal was miraculous. Um, and you, you can kind of weigh this as you want. I, I kind of go back and forth, but it, for me, it's, it, it, um, I, can, I can see the point that when Jesus was praying for the cup to be removed from him. The cup that he was referring to, obviously, was the cup of his death. And what he was asking was, let this cup pass from me. You know, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. And what was passing was dying a natural death. Don't let that be my portion. Don't let that be my cup. I'm the one that decides when I die, not my physical body reaching the end of itself because of blood loss and because of just a trauma. I'm the one that chooses to give up my spirit. You can weigh that, I, you know, something I play with. But regardless, everything about this whole process was miraculous if you took any other human being and put them in Jesus' position, right? 
So even the, you know, even the strongest Rambo probably would not have made it to actually be put on the cross. So Jesus is. Um, and so the Romans, in, in the way he, Jesus was crucified, the, the, what some of the commentaries say is the Roman soldiers already knew he was near death. So where crucifixion could go a day, two days, some might even go as long as three days, they knew Jesus was going to die quickly because there just wasn't, there wasn't anything of a man left to keep alive. So they nailed his hands because, in a sense, they were playing with him because his wrist would have been more supportive, but his hands, once nailed, would then begin to tear and actually give up and that would have been even more painful. And they had a short period of time to create a maximum amount of pain. And so his hands were nailed, not his wrists. So it's important when we think about the crucifixion, it's important to realize that, so they go to the tomb, the tomb is empty, they come back, they're like, man, I don't know what that means. But then the ladies are like, but there was these two guys in really bright apparel. And they told us this, you know. So if the tomb had not been empty, if somehow Jesus, the body, the physical body of Jesus would have remained in the tomb and Jesus had appeared in any other form, he, they would have thought him to be a ghost or an aberration. They would, you know, they would have seen it differently. And we see through the scriptures where people think they're seeing a ghost at various times, right? It was also Jesus, when he finally shows up, what's the first thing he's doing? He's like, touch me. He, this was not some, um, he, he was not a ghost. He wasn't a, I'm not I'm looking for the word, but he, you know, he wasn't like this, he wasn't like this transparent person that you could kind of see through. He was kind of there, but he wasn't there. Thank you. That's the word, apparition. He wasn't an apparition. He, he was standing there in his physical body. He's like, here, touch me. Touch, touch my hands. Go ahead, Tom, put, put your hand in my side. Hey, let's go have a dinner. He sits on the beach, and he eats fish with him. Do you think the guys were all like, that's amazing. Watch, it goes down his throat. Uh, it's in his stomach. That's amazing. You see right through him. It's like the invisible man. But no, he was f physical. This was a physical body. We in Christianity have a tendency to spiritualize that and make that body something else. It was a physical body. If, it, if he hadn't have done that, all they would have done is just conclude that, that the body had been stolen, whether he was dead or alive, whatever, the body was stolen, and we're still in a lot of trouble. Luke 24, verse 36. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do you, why, 
why did doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands, my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones. As you see, I have them. I mean, he challenged them. He said, I'm not a spirit. I'm standing in front of you. This is me, literally. And while they still disbelieved for joy and, and marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of uh, broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then, they said to, then he said to them, these are my words that I have spoken to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness, for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power on high. It's interesting, Jesus on life side of the cross did not fulfill any of the expectations of the Jews. Jesus on the resurrection side of the cross did not fulfill any of the expectation of the Jews. He's consistent. <laughs> I've come to make a point, and the point doesn't change. This is a new world that's being created. This is the new creation. This is what I've told you about. They thought of him as, you know, as we already talked about, they saw him, if they saw him as Messiah at all, they saw him in the context of the Exodus Passover narrative. That's what they were expecting. And he didn't fulfill that. Um, the Jews did, you know, part of the Jews, there was a group that didn't, but part of, most of the Jews believed in the resurrection, but their idea, the resurrection is at the end of the age when everybody's resurrected. Yeah, so that's not, not in between on the timeline somewhere. One guy doesn't get resurrected. That's not what we're expecting, everybody or nobody. And then he shows up. If I can push our thinking a little bit, we have this tendency as human beings, we divide things into solid physical objects or something that's fading away, passing away, a memory, but it's either, you know, everything in it. We, we, this is, we live in a tangible world. This is, you know. And then we have things that happen to us, other things that, that there's a fading to it. It becomes a memory. It becomes not something solid. It becomes something other. Um, and in the other, we, we, you know, as people, we make room for ghosts. We make room for, like, spiritual apparitions. There's things that happen. We don't understand it. We don't, you know, whatever. Um, and so when we think of heaven and earth, earth is where the tangible is. Heaven is where the intangible is. Jesus, 
in, in some thinking it would be impossible for Jesus after the resurrection to still have a physical body because physical bodies can't exist in heaven. But Jesus had a physical body. Jesus somehow didn't fit into either of the narratives. I mean, he, he, at one point, he could uh, walk through a wall or appear in a room. In another moment, he's sitting down and having dinner with them and chatting with them. Somehow, Jesus in resurrected form, and now keep in mind, you know, as, as we've been talking about along the way, it's not earth here and heaven way off there somewhere. Heaven and earth are interfacing and interlocking all the time, and they're in the same place. So all of a sudden, Jesus, in resurrected form, seemed to be comfortable in both places. If he's on the earth, he seemed very comfortable. I'm assuming when he's in heaven, he's comfortable. He sits down with his father. You know, he does other things. So I think we have to look, start looking differently at the unseen realm. The in, unseen realm isn't just shapes and orbs. It's actual physical things. And I don't, you know, we talk about this on another day, and others have talked about it, but the earth is, heaven and earth are the twins of God's creation. And what is on the heavenly realm is completed, but not invisible. It's only invisible to us on the earthly realm who don't see what's actually all around us right now. Everybody okay? The other piece that we've been talking about is in the interface between heaven and earth. For a Jewish person, first century, what I saw and what I think when I think of heaven and earth being together is the temple. The temple is that place where there's the interface. And, and in, that, in that place, um, that's where I would go and have you know, both seen and unseen heaven and earth experiences in the temple. Jesus now says, I'm the temple. I am the place where heaven and earth intersect. When you see me, you've seen the Father. When you've seen me, we could say, We've also seen heaven. We've seen the interface. We've seen both, both places. And when we have this idea that, the, um, that somehow heaven is where everything is kind of um, transparent shapes and orbs or whatever comes to mind in that, Understand that when we develop that thinking, all we're doing is relying back on Plato. That's what Plato said. Now, Plato, you know, probably most of you know, but he lived about 400 years before Christ and was the huge, his, his philosophy was the predominant philosophy in the world at that time, in the Mediterranean world at least. So this is, this is what Plato says about heaven. Plato's heaven is one in which man is free from the imperfect physical material world. Plato believed that man is primarily made up of a soul 
and that that man's soul is trapped in a body, much like being trapped in prison. This is the basis for Plato's phrase, soma sima, which means the body is in prison or in the tomb for the body is a prison or tomb for the soul. To Plato, salvation occurs when the soul is set free from the prison body. The soul is then free to live in the realm of pure forms, which we'll talk about on another day, to live in the realm of pure forms, and there it can behold the absolute good, the pure form. So Plato saw that there was a war between the soul and the body, and if we're not careful, we start thinking in those same terms. And, and we can also find scripture to, to align with that if you want. I think if you do that, you're taking the scripture out of context from what it is saying. But, you know, um, oftentimes, especially when people are, die and they've dealt with a lot of sickness that leads up to death, oftentimes we'll use the phrase, wow, I'm finally free from this body. I'm finally out of here. I can't wait to be out of here. And, and probably most of us, if you press them on, well, what does be out of here mean? I'm going to be out of this body. I'm sick of this body. I never liked the way it looked. I never liked carrying it around. I'm finally, I'm free. I don't want to disappoint you too bad, but I don't think you're going to be free. The body is going to be changed, right? So Jesus being laid in the tomb, that was a mutilated body incapable of sustaining itself resurrected body, this side of the tomb, he's walking around. He's eating. He's not having any trouble using his hands. He's picking up the fish and eating it. But it was Jesus. It wasn't Casper. So, what, you know, in that, in that, in Plato's view of things, what if he was wrong? What if that's not the way it is? What if that the Israeli scriptures are actually correct and that heaven and earth are the twin halves of God's created reality, designed to eventually come together. They were never intended to be separated. They got separated at the beginning, but God's intent has never changed. These two are coming together. That's what I created, where heaven and earth interface and interact and people move in, you know, in whichever realm they need to be in at whatever time, and there's no limitation. So what if the two realms have been kept apart because humans who were put in charge of the earth rebelled? And what if in their rebellion, we've created enough momentum to, to declare, as it were, earth's independence and self-rule? And suppose that that self-rule has become so powerful that it has effectively kept the two realms apart and acted as a tyrant on the earth with the regular weapon that every tyrant uses, death. And so what if, if that's true, then Jesus coming, what did he do? He confronted sin and death. So what death did he confront? What death did he undo? What death was defeated in the cross? Because we, I mean, yeah, we can all sit here in the room and go, well, I'm, I'm you know, short of something. Chances are I will die. And 
all my relatives from the past, they're all dead. I can take you to their graves. I can tell you where they are in my genealogy. I can do a lot of things, but they're all dead. So what death was he defeating? It was the power of the tyrant. It was the power of death that holds over us the accusation that we are not the sons of God. And the tyrant says, I can kill you when I want to kill you. Which is why for me in the garden, when Jesus talks about the cup, it was why, why, where Jesus was coming from. Father, you know, let this go in such a way that the tyrant doesn't kill me. I want to be the one that says, I give up my spirit. I'm in control of who I am and who I am in you and who you are in me. And no tyrant is going to take that from me. I am the one that does that. Romans 7, 22 and 24. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That's what Paul's talking about. He's like, this death, it's not just physical death. It's a different death. It's a separation death. It's a death that gets held over me. It's where the accuser is able to come and raise havoc with me. It's that place where I am kept from being all that God intended me to do. And, you know, we know when, when, um, when they rejected God in the garden, they didn't physically die, but they died. And didn't Harold talk about this last week? I think he went into that a little bit. But the death that they died, it was the spiritual separation. It was that place where now I'm under the, the subjection and the reign of the tyrant. Instead of under the reign of my creative father, who said, I want to walk with you in the cool of the day. I want to talk with you. I want to show you what ruling and reigning on the earth looks like from my perspective. I want to have that that ongoing relationship with you and now instead I'm being ruled by a tyrant I only asked if Harold has said it because I didn't want to repeat too much but so Paul you know he lays this out I said now I see in myself you know I delight in the law of God I, I come to this place where I'm like this is right this is what it should look like on earth I probably most of us have no trouble giving a definition of what justice looks like to us about life without pain, what does that look like? Life without strife between people, what does that look like? We can all probably give some pretty good definitions of what life would look like and what it would feel like if that was the way life was. So Paul says, I agree with the law of God. I see that in the law of God, there's a way that humanity should be working and living and, and having their being and, and interacting with each other. I see what that is. But what I see in me is that's not happening. So for as much as I can will it and want it, I just can't do it. So then he, he, Paul comes to this place. He said, wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me from this death? This death is at work in me on a regular basis. I see it in my members. I see the conflict in me. You know, most of us have a conscience. Most of us with that conscience, you know when you messed up as soon as it comes out of your mouth. 
Yep. And it's not like you go, oh, well, that's the, that's the sixth commandment. No, it's just as soon as you do it, the accuser is right there gone. Told you. Told you. Told you that's who you are. We sang about that today in worship. Told you that's who you are. Told you you can never do that. Told, blah, 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 whatever it is. Sin and death are right there, working hand in hand. So that's where Paul found himself in, in, in Romans 7. So let's suppose that the creator God finally comes in the person. And he breaks the tyrant's weapon. And he inaugurates this new world in which the original purpose of creation is finally would be fulfilled. That somehow he's setting this thing right. I'm convinced that the early Christians believed that's what was going on when they met Jesus. A lot of the things we think are central to Christianity now, these, the first century church wasn't even thinking about. I'm not saying everything that's, that's evolved since then shouldn't have. I'm just saying when you look at where things started and what they were seeing. So in this resurrection, they could see that he was very much alive and, and equally at home in heaven, the unseen realm, and earth, the seen realm. You know, the resurrection stories, you know, that... This, that they come out of initial Christianity. These resurrection stories are different than any other religion or philosophy around. No other religion that I'm familiar with on the earth has ever had stories in it and central to what it is about God coming in the flesh, God being murdered by men, God being resurrected from the dead, and God changing people to be like him. There, there, there isn't any gods out there like that. But there is one. His name is Yahweh. And of course, when you start telling these stories, first century and even now, there's a huge amount of skepticism. I, mean, I talk to people on a fairly regular basis. Like, well, how do you know that Jesus even existed? How do you know? Blah, 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 you know, you know. <laughs> Valid questions. I don't think they should be minimized. I think there are answers to the questions. And we should have the answers. And I think it really comes down to that what we've seen, that what we've heard, that what we've touched is now what I tell you. That's why for me, Christian, the central part of Christianity is not an intellectual discourse that can be sharpened to the point that you can shut down anyone who has a different view because I just have the, the sharpness of the argument. And if need be, I can raise my voice and call you names. I think that the centrality of Christianity is the presence. And so salvation can't be just taking a class and going, well, those apologetics were good. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 think, I think I'll do Jesus. Well, you can do Jesus, you just won't do him long. Because life will work a work that'll confront you with your intellectual sharpness to stay. Because it's the presence. It's that place where God somehow, often in intangible ways or ways we can't fully 
define or describe, God comes and meets us personally, often in very dark moments. And somehow, Joe, as you were sharing, you know, somehow we're at this place where you feel like, man, my suffering is so great. I don't, I, I just don't think I can take another breath. And Jesus steps into the room. And you know it's him. You know it's him. And how do you know that it's him, him whom you've never seen? For me, my response is I have seen him. Yeah. I have seen him. Yeah. It's not the Jesus on that picture that hangs in most churches. I haven't seen him. But I've seen Jesus. Yeah. I've heard his voice. I've touched him. And he's touched me. And he's heard my voice. And he's seen me. Because I have, yes, by name, by name. The power of the tyrant over the old creation was broken, defeated, and overthrown in the resurrection. God's kingdom is now launched, and it's launched with power and glory on the earth as it is in heaven. On the earth as it is in heaven. That's always been the stated goal. Jesus, the minute they say, teach us what to pray. This is what you pray. So you just need to keep declaring it. Well, there's a lot of days it doesn't feel like, this don't look like heaven. And Jesus said, well, when you pray, this is how you pray. So when you see what seems to be a contradiction to heaven, what do we pray? Our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not up to me to be able to see it all. It's up to me to have the privilege of praying it into existence. Paul goes on, and you know in Romans it's not, in any of the books of the New Testament, they're not broke up in neat chapter and verse. That was added later. It was just a letter. So Paul goes on in this letter, and chapter 7 in our Bibles becomes chapter 8. And this is where Paul, after saying, wretched man that I am. Again, that's a favorite verse for some that want to make sure we all start our day going, wretched man that I am, wretched man that I am, wretched man that I am. No, that's not how we start our day. I don't have to shave a little bald spot right in the top of my head and walk around with a long skirt. (laughs) Although I will wear a kilt. Minus the bald spot. I don't know. It's kind of happened naturally anyway. I don't know. Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Paul said, wretched man that I am. Who can get me out of this law of sin and death? Jesus is the one that gets you out of the law of sin and death. He's the one that makes me a new creation. For God, is, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likefulness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. I can come to the place where I go, wretched man that I am. Most of us have come to that more than once. 
but right behind any time I acknowledge the wretchedness of me, I have to say, and now there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm not that wretched man. I am now born as a new creation. I am now a son of the living God. I'm in a new creation, not an old world. The old world was defeated at the cross, at the tomb, at the resurrection. I promise, I only got six more pages. But this is what Jesus said to his hearers in his lifetime. He told them ahead of time. This is what's going to take place. This is why it's going to take place. A new power is released on the earth. The power to remake what is broken, to heal what was diseased, to restore what was lost. The kingdom Jesus inaugurated strangely, mysteriously, and partially during his public career through his healings and feastings and teachings was now unveiled in a totally new dimension, the new creation. The new creation. So when we look back over the things that, that you know, we've covered over these last weeks, this is the meaning of, the, of Easter. This is the real beginning of the kingdom. Jesus' risen body, heart, mind, and soul are the prototype of the new creation. That's what we're supposed to look like. That's what we are going to look like. We've seen him as temple in person. We've seen him in jubilee in person. And now we see him as the new creation in person. He is the resurrection. He's not just one that's been resurrected. He is the resurrection. The thing about the new creation, and it overflows with the power of love. I'm not going to read these for obvious reasons, but just read Luke chapter 24, John chapters 20 and 21, and see what starts to unfold. When Jesus, after the resurrection, the, the followers are sorrowful, they're ashamed, they're anxious. He shows up in physical form. He calls them by name. He tells them not to be afraid. He explains what's going on. He deals with them as individuals. You know, without going long into that, but the meeting on the road to Emmaus. Man, that's like in uh, Luke 24. That road to Emmaus, that... Emmaus is one of the most powerful, to me, stories of the New Testament. These two disciples, they're, they're defeated, they're all this, and Jesus comes along. They don't even know who he is. They don't recognize him. But he talks with them. He explains to them. He, you know, we, we oftentimes, when I can't get there intellectually, I just call it a mystery and leave it at that. Jesus explains it. He explained the mystery. He told them what had happened. They still, they caught what he was saying, but they still didn't know who he was. Then he breaks bread with them. And as soon as he breaks bread with them, they see. Because they had broken bread with him before. And then he was gone. And I said, man, but didn't our hearts burn inside of us? Wasn't there something about his words? How many times for us as believers have we been at that place that in, in those desperate moments, in those hard moments, maybe even in the joyful moments, it doesn't always have to be cloudy, 
But whenever we have these encounters with Jesus, how many of us can, can, can look back and go, man, my heart burned. It just burned. Something about his voice. It's like everything eternal that's inside of me is touched when his voice speaks. Jesus' conversation with Peter in John 21, meeting with him on the beach, and just the way he dealt with him. You know, you can, yeah, just the way he dealt with him. It's a power, read it, you know it. This love that Jesus expresses is strong, it's powerful, it's life-changing, it's life-directing. The new creation has begun, and its motivating power is love. It's not armies. It's not power the way the world defines it. It's not force the way the world defines it. It's not one-upmanship. As Joe exhorted us early, this suffering, it's not that every day I'm getting put on the cross. I think it's just an identifying with us understanding the power of the gospel and the glory of the gospel. There is a suffering that goes along with trying to make that available to someone else especially when they go, you crazy. But, you know, I'm not paying any attention. There's a suffering because there's, there's a free gift standing in front of you that'll change your life. And for whatever reason, at this point, you're unable to receive it. That's a suffering. That's identifying in the sufferings of Christ. One more scripture. Luke 24, and they said to them, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning with Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. This new life, this new creation, all that we are, it begins through repentance and forgiveness. You know, in the Western way of thinking, we oftentimes put that, make that kind of this gloomy thing where, you know, every day I'm walking with this deep regret. I got to carry all this remorse. I got to flog myself because I got all this stuff going on. And, and you know, so, you know, I got to make sure that, that I've remembered every sin so I can make sure I can ask forgiveness for every sin. And we go through all that stuff. And, you know, we're, we're always minimizing ourselves. We're always, you know, seeing ourselves as the wretched man that we are. But, you know, dredging up sins and all that kind of stuff. Jesus comes along and says, no, this is the way it works. There's repentance and there's forgiveness. And it's a far, far bigger picture than just my personal sin. The old creation lives by pride and rest retribution. You know, I stand up for myself, and if anybody gets in my way, I try to get even. The new creation is completely different in the way to live. A way of love and reconciliation, healing and hope. It's a way that nobody ever tried before. Really, it's, it's unthinkable to most people in societies. They'll tell you it just won't work. If you're just going to love, what are you going to do with the bad guys? Well, I love. And this piece, we're not going to go into today, but I go back and I read the Gospels, and when I look at what Jesus tells me I should be doing and how I should be interacting with other people, I still don't like the plan. I'm like, Jesus, anybody that lives like that could get themselves killed. He goes, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the point is to release love. 
because love wins. I am the victor. I am Christus victor because of love. So here's the beginning of our Easter message. From the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus, it doesn't mean it's all right now and we're going to heaven now. It means that life of heaven has been born on the earth. It's not getting out of here. It's actually heaven coming here. It's not me getting out of this body. It's this body being redeemed. It doesn't mean that there's life after death. Now, before you check that one off and say, now I'm not going there with him, the purpose of Easter and the purpose of the resurrection is not a proof text for life after death. That's not what Easter was about. There is life after death, but Easter speaks of so much more. It speaks of the life that is neither ghostly nor unreal, but definite, solid, and practical. Easter speaks of the beginning, not the end, the beginning of a new world and a beginning kingdom. It declares God is in charge through Jesus himself being king and Lord. And the title on the cross, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, is true. It's true. He is king. He is. And I think that's the end of my time because... So I better sit down before I become, yeah, a ghost. <laughs> oh, I thought you said ghost. Let's see if I can do it. Um, <laughs> let's stand. <laughs> Jesus, I thank you that we are part of the new creation. We are part of all that you're doing on the earth. I thank you, Jesus, that death has been defeated, that the accuser of the brethren has been cast down, that sin and death no longer have a legitimate voice in our lives. Lord, and that you have come, that heaven and earth will come together, and we look forward for the day when heaven and earth truly come together and Jesus, you step foot on the earth as king. And in that time between now and then, you have told us that we are to go and proclaim to the ends of the earth that you are Lord, that repentance and the forgiveness of sin is available to everyone. And we're able to do that in power, and glory, and in your name. Jesus, over us as a company of believers, may, may the, the uh, as uh, Joe prayed earlier, may this passion for who you are and what you've done, may this passion so fill us that it propels us to go and to declare. And, and whatever may be, may be, but we will be in you no matter what. We thank you that we stand on the shoulders of the early saints, who starting as just a handful of people managed to shift a whole nation and ultimately that leaven is now leavening the whole planet. Thank you, Lord, for your kingdom.
And Lord, may your will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. 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 So, woo, sorry I went so long.